0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: I'd like to introduce our essay speaker, John R. from the fine city of San Diego. the past few days I've been trying to milk my nervousness in the speech for everything it's worth, all the reassurances and uh, hugs and uh, we love you's and etc. It's been really worthwhile for me, really reassuring. Uh, and uh, I, like, I like sort of getting into that role occasionally just for a little contrast uh, as opposed to my usual gung-ho, aggressive perpetrator self. Uh, oh, my, my name is John R. and I'm a sexaholic. And uh, my sobriety date is March 27, 1995. And it is amazing, it never ceases to amaze me, that I've been able to be sober one day at a time for that period of time, and that I'm sober today. But anyway, getting back to my nervousness, uh, uh, I think that underneath it is the what I'm giving something up, up and making this commitment to the fellowship and standing up in front of uh, all of you at a conference and uh, witnessing to my recovery. And I know that this is yet another step in committing myself to a new way of life. A way of life that I really want and that really gives me peace and joy. And I know that my addict really resists that. Every step and every commitment and every real connection that I make, I experience real, res- real resistance in doing that. And when I think about it, in essence, that's what working with others is about. And the other way is that really it is working with others and making real human connections with people with whom I share a commitment to recovery that keeps me sober. And I have no doubt that I would not be sober today if I didn't do it. You know, one of my... Uh, I, I also came through AA. I'll tell my story a little bit. But I know that one of my problems is that for four years... I worked a minimal AA program, you know, just go to meetings and stay sober and have some people you say hi, and that allowed me to stay sober. And uh, I didn't actually work the steps. For, uh, I got a sponsor, I think I was four years sober in AA before I got the steps. And it really has bothered me that you can't work that, that at least I can't work that kind of program in SA. You know, what's with, there must be something wrong with SA that I can't work that kind of program. And uh, um, so... I can't, and uh, the, pro- the level of program I work now seems to be just what I need, the absolute minimum I need, to stay sober. Anyway, let me, let me uh, talk about my, what, what it was like a little bit. Uh, I grew up in a family where um, um, I was raised, and I think my mother, in a very loving way, taught me that sex is everything, and that the way that men and women connect in the world is sexually. And throughout my childhood, there were a uh, series of men coming in and out of our house. And I think that I was the eldest son. Oh, we were talking about this a little bit about being the eldest son. And, uh, my, my mother tried to raise me right, which is to raise me to be the kind of man that she found attractive. And, uh, she was, I think, pretty successful in that. And, uh, she, I was her confidant from a, quite an early age. She, uh, to me into her confidence about what she liked in men and in sex and et cetera, and also began to instruct me about how I could be a lady killer. And um, uh I was I, I felt so special and um, so honored and so loved by all that and uh uh I saw a lot of inappropriate things and uh experienced a lot of things that, that I got a lot of confused messages. And uh, I, but I think under the the most basic message I I got about life was that uh, the way people connect is through sex, and, and what and you can But that doesn't mean that there's any trust at all. You can't trust the other person. It's a war. It's it's and it's a battle. And the way you win is to control the other person, essentially through sex. And the woman is going to act like she wants control, but really she doesn't. She really. Wants you to be a son of a bitch. Anyway, uh, really. So anyway, that's the message I went into uh, into adolescence with, and then the 60s came, and I saw a chance to be powerful, which was in the movement liberation movements of the 60s, and I devoted a great deal of time to try to sort of combining these uh, discourses, these ways of that really in doing these things to you, I'm really liberating you. And this is really uh, part of our liberation is that we do these things together to various women. And I worked very hard at constructing relationships like that. And um, uh, and certainly part of it was uh, the abundant use of chemicals for that, too, alcohol and drugs, etc. And um, as as the 60s turned into the 70s, I think the sort of political and liberation parts of it became less important and just the obsessive parts. The alcohol and drugs and obsessive sexual relationships became much more, became front and center. And, uh, I, I actually happened upon a, um, diary I wrote in the late, oh, on meme 12, of course, there's that basic, as we know, the underlying, uh, foundation of pornography and masturbation that almost goes without saying. But that really is the, the one, it's like for me, in terms of my chemical addiction, alcohol is a drug that's always there for me. Uh, other drugs come and go, but alcohol is always there. And I feel the same way, you know, various predilections and sexual addiction come and go, but m- pornography and masturbation is always there and always solid, and I can always count on it. Um, but anyway, I, I happened to find a diary that I was keeping and I was talking about it that I was just too, uh, too m- much stuck in pornography and masturbation at that time. And then I had a list of things to do about it. That is to say, how I might be able to contact some women that I could victimize and um, so in my my way but i really am thankful that i'm truly an addict and that my best plans ultimately didn't succeed in the way i would succeed them that in realizing fantasies it always involves real people and real people have uh guilt and have anger and get stds and get unwanted pregnancies etc and that uh, at those moments when i thought i was closest to realizing these fantasies were moments that really brought me into hell and misery. And so by the, by my mid-30s, I thought there was something wrong in my life, that this wasn't enough. I, but uh, By that time, I'd moved to Silver Lake in L.A., and I was part of a... I won't go into it. I had the perfect pad and everything, but things were not going well. And so uh, anyway, that, I really felt some spiritual em- emptiness in my life. Uh, for one thing, the 60s were definitely over. And... Uh, <laughs> I finally had really come to that conclusion uh uh and I think, as many do in spiritual crisis, I turned to hollywood and um and it really was that that Christmas when I saw it's a wonderful life i saw it, i said that's what I want, that's what I want I want to be George Bailey. I want this you know i that'll that'll cure me I just need to get married and have a regular life and everything and and That'll do it. I really remember that revelation. And then I remember trying to convince my girlfriend at the time that uh, that's what we needed to do. And um, and as my spiritual growth, at that time I really had a, an experience of God in mind. I began to realize that there was a God that loved and cared for me. And that's really important that I began to realize that. But that began the bargaining process with him. About how much can I give you in order to, re- to be able to experience the love and forgiveness you offer me. Like, uh, maybe 20% of my life is okay, or I'll do this, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I realized that that's a bargain, that bargaining process that began then in the early 1980s for me is going on today. And, uh, it's, uh, surrender by degrees, I know, for me, in my uh, relationship with my higher power. And at first it led me into, uh, a church, and then it led me into AA, and then it led me into a into marriage uh and then i think uh for a while i really that seemed really good to me because i'd given everything up except this one little corner and i think uh of my double life that i was uh working a good program in aa i uh was a leader in the church etc etc and i just had this one little thing which was primarily uh masturbation pornography and euphoric recall and uh uh other than that, and I had quite a bit of that actually uh and and as people heard my first step know, i knew i really knew i knew this was messing me up, so I needed to get it out so actually over a period of a couple of years, I wrote down my whole story, my whole acting out uh this uh, about a two hundred page single spaced uh, novel, which I never tried to publish but uh I was really attached to that. And uh, I really tried this catharsis stuff uh, over and over again. And, but finally, doing a serious fourth step in uh, AA led me into SA in 1990. And there are a couple of people in, this, in, in San Diego, and there are a couple of people in this room that were there at that time. But, uh, like again, like I think a number of people, the first time didn't uh, quite make it for me. I uh, uh, Anyway, I had a whole set of judgments about SA. I won't go through them. Some, some are probably, uh, probably familiar to you. For one, it, a lot of them had to do with the fact that it wasn't AA, and that it didn't work like AA, and it didn't feel like AA, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't as easy for me as AA. And um, um, finally, uh, after about a year, after a little over a year, I actually had a year of sobriety, I, I went back out uh, and decided, I, I'm sure you've never heard this before, I can do work on my sexual addiction in my AA program, All right? And... Uh, and that worked. Oh this and then by the way, this was with the strong support and enthusiastic support of my therapist. God, you're finally getting over these neurotic hang ups you have about your sexuality, John, I remember. Uh and uh and I still remember when I broke my sobriety in ninety one, which was this liberating act that I was this here I was, I was gonna masturbate in a healthy, happy, loving way. <laughs> and uh I did it. Um, well, anyway. And the rest is history. Uh, uh, you know, the definition of addiction, John Charlie, I really love it. Uh, when you try to co- stop, you can't stop. And when you try to moderate, you can't moderate. And that was me. And I was back into my secret life. And um, um, again, at this point, uh, I was convinced that I need to do... Th- I can't lie. My AA program convinced me lying is wrong. And I have to figure out a way to do this without lying. And... Uh, uh, or at least overtly telling a lie. And this was, uh which meant, well, it didn't work. I'll just put it that way. Uh, I, I went through a period trying to convince my wife that this behavior really was okay. And, and praise her soul, she never was prepared to buy that. And I really am grateful for that. That I never could get her to buy my line of bullshit. And, pardon me. These are really stubborn sometimes. It's really great. <laughs> and uh the other thing, well... And just to tell you one, during that period, I think this was about 94, I was coming home from my home AA meeting and I, I led the meeting and I was really spiritual. I was really spiritual. I mean like I was walking about three feet off the ground and I came to the door of my apartment and I opened the door and there right in front of the door was all my pornography in a stack. That my wife had been, my wife and I had been planning a trip and she'd been looking for some maps for the trip and she'd found, uh, this, and then there was a note on it, you know, Things, some not very nice things, and she wasn't there. So my spiritual high kind of evaporated. And, uh, I lied. I lied big time behind that one to pull that one back together, really. Um, but, but at any rate, finally in 1995, a couple of things happened that pushed me over the edge. Uh, one was that, uh, I, I, uh, went to Japan on a one-year sabbatical to do some research a place i had been before but for me Tokyo is an extremely extremely slippery place for a variety of reasons that some of you in this room know uh, they anyway I won't go into those but they are it's a very slippery place um, for uh, for a white man who speaks Japanese I'll put it that way who is as much of a predator as I am and uh the other thing that happened was the internet, the World Wide Web, cyberspace was here, and I was at the University of Tokyo with a high-speed T1 connection. Whoa! And um, anyway, I, again, I, I don't think I have to tell some of you what that means. And, and just, I really do think it's like the advent of crack cocaine. I really think there are real analogies. You know, it's it's. Cheap, in many cases free, and you, it, it goes right to the brain. And you know, if you, you can use your search engine and et cetera, it's, it's really a, a scary thing, I think. But anyway, uh, uh, I got to the point where one day I'd gone into my office on, on Saturday to look at pornography on my computer, and I had my pants down around my knees at my desk, I mean, and typically there weren't many people in on Saturday in this office and i heard steps coming down the hall and i realized that in my eagerness i neglected to lock the door this was one of my Japanese colleagues coming up the hall and uh but anyway fortunately or whatever uh, this person walked on past the door but i began to think that maybe i was a little powerless <laughs> i thought and i said you know i think i am so desperate at this point I'm ready to try SA again. And, uh, uh, and, but then it was really difficult. Uh, the SA was is, is, uh, very small in Tokyo, but I, I thought it didn't exist. And I, I actually sat through two SLA meetings where there was nobody else there. I mean, I was really desperate at that time. Which, I don't know, maybe some of you think those are the best kind of SLA meetings, but, uh, I, I take no position on that. Um, but then I was I call up a priest who actually had been my first AA sponsor way, way back in eighty five. And uh I I I always oh, had a I don't know I was at a payphone and uh I was talking to him and uh he, how's it going? Oh my recovery's going great. Blah, 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 blah. And I said, You know, but Roy, um uh there's another addiction I'm having a kind of problem with and he said, You know there's SA here <laughs> Uh, I don't know how he guessed, but, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, and that led me to my first essay. And, uh, and that was March 27th, 1995. And by the grace of God, I've been able to fix over one day at a time. And, uh, but in sobriety, my face still falters. I still fall into bargaining and, uh, trying to figure out that way that has escaped me up to now, how to, how to control and enjoy it. Without having the consequences that I know it brings into my life and in my relationships with others, with myself, and with my higher power. And, uh, the chief way I grow in gratitude for my imperfect so- sobriety is the new relationship I have with God and others as a result of sobriety. Even when I feel so uncomfortable and I feel, uh, uh, when I don't, in fact, desire sobriety. And there are days, I was, I was struck by what Roy Kay said. And I can't, I, I do have days when, um I don't desire sobriety. But I still really cannot figure out a way that I want to go ahead with a life that doesn't involve the relationships I have with people, that I've built in sobriety. And So, I mean, another way to say it is there are days in my program, and not so many, when I don't care enough about myself to stay sober for myself. But I do care for all those people that i built relationships with that are dependent upon me staying sober. And uh, I thought this was a great insight, and then I read the big book, and it says the best way to stay sober is to work with others. Huh? I thought Bill just read my mind. Because <laughs> that's really where I, what I've uh, been drawn to in my experience. And I'm, I'm very fortunate. There's a number of people in this room whom I sponsor, and I think they're working really good programs. And uh, and by the grace of God, staying sober. And, and a couple a little while ago, I was reflecting on why do I have these sponsees that stay sober? I knew it wasn't because I'm so great. I, I, could, I could eliminate that one. Well, I was tempted for a minute. Okay. Be honest. Okay. But, alright. I, but I moved on past that one. And, uh, um I, I really believe the reason is that God and His love knows just what I need to stay sober. How sick I am. And that I need these relationships with these guys that are really working good programs and really trying to stay sober. Uh, to, for me to, to do so. And uh, so it's, it's really a great act of his love. Um, so anyway, I'm going to talk just a little bit about giving and receiving sponsorship here. Um, we you know, I recognize that, I mean, one of the great beauties of sexualism is that it's so obviously and, and centrally a disease of uh, relationship uh, misconnection, of, uh, of uh, being love crippled. And uh, I still don't, I still feel so inadequate and so ill-made when it comes to having relationships with other human beings based on an intimacy founded in honesty and mutual regard. It's so deeply ingrained in me that intimacy needs to be based on secrecy and manipulativeness and power control, etc. And uh, that's why giving and receiving sponsorship in the way that that relationship embodies the practice of the steps. is so healing for me. And uh, what I've found in the practice of, of sponsorship, above all, is is what we hear again and again. It's one of those things you hear uh, until you don't hear until you don't hear anymore. That the one thing we need to achieve sobriety, no matter how sick we are, is the capacity to be honest. And that's great. That's one of those phrases for which. To me, that has great wisdom, and I've grown in my ability to appreciate this, that one way I think about what sponsorship is, is developing that, developing the capacity to be honest, to have a relationship that's intimate and caring, and yet based on honesty. And um, we need practice. I need practice. And that's really what, in a sense, sponsorship is about is this relationship which, from the very beginning, has a foundation in honesty. And uh, that's why it's important to work with another sexaholic. Because it's only with another sexaholic that there's no excuse not to be uh, honest. Really, with anyone else, there's a point where my behavior is incomprehensible. The fact that, that given my life now, after two and a half years... I still, uh, battle with loss so much, and I'm still, and I still sometimes violate my boundaries. Uh, you know, they have a, I can talk to many, many people and they'll tell me what to do. Well, why don't you just stop? Right? (laughs) You're hurting yourself. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. So, so, and, and that does tend to put a damper on my ability to be honest with that person about the most shameful, secretive parts of my life. But in an essay, I know for many of us, when I came in and others when I came in, here was the first place where I could be honest. There's no, uh, in fact I'm urged to be honest because I think the, the, the beautiful sacred space of essay is that, um, I mean when essay works is that I'm accepted as a sexaholic, there's no judgment, there's no moralization and condemnation, but on the other hand, there's no facilitation, right? There's a real facilitation of recovery. And it's very, very hard to find that balance, I know we're still looking for it, I'm looking for it, the, but that's what, that's that space that I come into, and that's manifest in the relationship with the sponsor. And, so, uh, in that sense, uh, well, my first, uh, my first responsibility as a sponsor is to serve as a witness to the efficacy of the program. That God's kept, uh, God's power has kept a guy as sick as me sober one day at a time. And that it can do it for you. And uh, if you progressively take the action of surrender through the steps, one day can give you today. There's a way for you to stay sober today using the power of the steps. And also, i got to say that right from the beginning with newcomers, I say to them, and you can have a new life. You can have a completely different life. And typically not don't want to hurt so much, but I think it's really important to point to hold that out there. Um so but but if you have an if if intimacy in sponsorship or in relationships as a whole is based on honesty, that means you can't be you have to be willing to not hold on to the relationship at any cost. And I think that's hard. For me, and that's hard for a lot of people. Because there's, there's a point at which you have to... There there are relationships, and I've had relationships with sponsees, where I had to make a choice between my own integrity and between this fundamental commitment to, to, to honesty and the relationship. And had to be prepared to walk away. And uh, that's uh, that's hard. It's, it's, it's uh, something to grieve about, but you've got to be able to uh, really ultimately... Be sincere that the fundamental commitment is to the honesty and to the growth in the program. And, uh, anyway, my typical day now, uh, I think I have on the average two to three contacts with other people in the program, sometimes more. And, uh, that seems to me to be just about right. Uh, my wife doesn't agree with that. But, uh, uh oh, well, my wife's on the program, and again, I think some of you know, uh, she wants the one thing that I can't give her. She wants me to graduate. Right? And uh, we've had many talks about that, actually. That's the one thing I can't give her, is I, I'm really happy that you're sober. I just wish you didn't have to go to these meetings. Right? So, um, but anyway, I've got to put my program first, and, and we're working that out. Um, so, two to three contacts a day, and for me, uh, in terms of practices, it's absolutely essential to... To set clear boundaries, to be really honest with myself about what those boundaries are, what it means for me to take that first step toward lust and be accountable to, for those boundaries. Accountable, immediately accountable for those boundaries in the relationship. Sponsor-sponsor relationship. And uh, that's something, that's an activity that's really worked for me and worked for others, I think. I can't, uh, even pretty trivial stuff, to be accountable for that. And uh, when I have lots like, of people call me, it's easy. Uh, and uh, one way that solidifies itself or crystallizes itself, and I know a lot of people use this in this room, is uh in with sobriety Uh which can be really powerful. If you take them seriously, and they just don't become blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Me too. Blah, 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 right? <laughs> but, I mean, if you actually are able to, if, if I am actually able to listen to them and use them. And I guess what I want to say about that is that, that in a sense, when I when I concretize it or materialize it, what does progressive victory over loss mean? I, I mean, a lot of it means within the fellowship, within the context of the fellowship, growing in my progressive ability to be honest, to be honest with myself and honest with the people in the fellowship. And it's something I still really struggle with. There still comes times when I have some secrets that I want to hold on to. or there's something I'm so ashamed of that I don't want to share. It. And then there are these moments, and I have them. It seems like I don't, I don't know. I try to think why they are, but periodically, I go through these periods of rebellion, rebellion against the program. And um, the strangest things can start it. I don't know, or nothing can started. Well, typically, the only times I really have problems are when things are going well or things aren't going well. actually, I, I, can, I can narrow it. I can narrow it down to that. I can. <laughs> Those are my only real triggers. <laughs> uh, and then I get it, oh, well, okay, I, I have a few of my rebellion scripts uh, here. Why can't I watch that G-rated movie with my daughter? Right? This is, this is really ridiculous. Uh, why can't, and I know a lot, like I said, the thing about, uh, uh, AA, why can't I, uh, why can't I do my program in the way, why hasn't love been removed from me? Uh, What's wrong with oh anybody in this one? What's wrong with beauty anyway? God made beauty. Right? Probably never heard that one. Or thought that one. Or maybe this morning. But um and anyway, that stuff can really get rolling in me sometimes. And I can start Oh, and then that see that goes on to the next stage of uh you know, knowing what I know now and learning what I've learned now, maybe I really could less like a gentleman.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. I, yeah, if I yeah, I I was a little extreme, and you know, anyway, uh, now I know I said I let that get out of hand, but but I you know I've gotten over resentment, and fear, and stuff now. So anyway, um, and that stuff can really start rolling in my head, and I I appreciated what was said yesterday by a couple of speakers about the forgetfulness disease because I've got to do a lot of big time serious forgetting to entertain this stuff. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's it's, it's <laughs> I'm insane. Let's face it. That's all I can say. But, uh, and I had a, I had a real bout, uh, about a month ago. Uh, there are people in this room who participated in that.
0: Um
1: and, uh, I went, I, I played this around with this stuff for quite a while. And, uh, but what happened was there was a, there were these, I got three phone calls in a period of about two hours. People that really needed to be me, be, needed me to be there and be sane for them. And uh, I really care about these people. I really care about them. And I was called upon to embody the sanity of, my, of the program and my reaction to them. You know? Regardless of where I was at about me. So, I had to embody. I was called upon, by those relationships, to embody that sanity. And by the time I, I hung up with the third person, it was just gone. The rebellion was over. Uh, effortlessly. With was no effort on my part. Completely, and I was really struck by the great eagerness with which God rushes out to draw me back. The great power and the, you know, just His stubbornness and utterly, obviously, being unwilling to let me go. Really, it was, and I was really grateful. It's just such a overwhelming manifestation of His presence in my life. Uh, yeah. mostly it's mutuality I think especially after a sponsor gets through the first early days but I, I as a sponsor do have a mentor role or a, you know the Japanese word sensei literally means the one who has done it before so there's something or other that I've done before they have all these crazy thoughts. but no there's something I've done before they have and I, I need to accept that and honor that and for my sponsors they know that that manifests itself specifically in a couple of questions I ask occasionally, can I give you some frank feedback? And the other is, can I make a suggestion? Right? And then we know, and, and early in sobriety, I was thinking that sometimes the suggestions, are, I don't know if you remember the, has anybody seen the movie Karate Kid? Or remember where the, uh, the uh, Pat Morita character says, paint the fence, wax on, wax off. Uh Go this way, go this way, and the kid is just going, "What am I doing all this stuff for?" And then it turns out he's he actually has learned how to kick and box and be really mean, and he thought he was just cleaning this guy's yard. And uh, and I think we got to accept the fact that sometimes the in sobriety uh, it's necessary both to give and receive instructions that are done in that way. Uh, call me every day. Let's do the sobriety renewals, right, et cetera, things like that. Uh, no, no, you you can't. Tell lies to your wife. You got to stop right now. No more lies, it's your wife. Uh, what? But I'm helping her. I'm protecting her. Yeah, Etc. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, but it, but I, I, I got to wrap it up here pretty quick. Uh, it's important to be vigilant for the issues of control and judgment that creep in the relationship, and uh, it requires a balance and a growth in the relationship that uh, that I don't have, and that, that God needs to intervene. And sometimes there are rocky moments and. In a, any real relationship. And, uh, uh, you know, i I, you know, I don't want to get into the psychological terms, but I, uh, well, okay. I let my sponsor down because I'm not perfect or whatever. Uh, and what that is though, and what, what's the great thing about it is, and all the old stuff comes up. Old stuff comes up for me, old stuff, old stuff comes up for them, but it's an opportunity to go through these old scripts and these old problems within the context of the fellowship. And to have to have successful and loving outcomes that the last time you went through them with mom or with whoever you couldn't have, and that's a great victory. So, and that's the opportunity to build trust and to learn to practice the actions of love. And and it's in that relationship, that somewhat shielded relationship, and also that relationship with a foundation of honesty built on a, a shared understanding of the. Of the uh, addiction, that we th- we can then take those insights and those practices out into those relationships like with our spouses and the other people. Yeah. And that's really growing, rich and recovery. And the, just to finish up, I'm really grateful. Uh, I'm really grateful for this new life I have and these new connections I have. And uh, I was talking to somebody, uh, a secretary at the department where I work, a few days ago, and she was saying... Uh, you, well, basically what she said is, you know, John, you're really a talented guy. You know, it's, it's really too bad you didn't make anything out of your life. <laughs> you know, basically, you know, you could have been so successful. You know, I, I, I'm 49 years old in graduate school. It is pretty interesting. But uh, uh, and I sort of went, oh, no, no, no. But then I walked away and she, I went, yeah, you know, she's right. If it hadn't been for all these addictions, I could have really gotten it together. I was thinking, well, what would that mean? What would I be now? Maybe a high-powered corporate attorney? Uh, no, no offense. Uh,
0: uh,
1: like Donald Trump, you know, and, uh, have a, have a few, you know, blown through a few marriages and getting really good at writing prenuptial agrees, agreements at this point. And, uh, you know, have like a jillion enemies and stuff. Yeah, I could have been really, really been a six, and no God, utterly, utterly miserable and in hell. I could have really been a success if it wasn't for my addiction. <laughs> and what do I have now? I have this life where I'm filled with gratitude, where I've had a you know, really pretty good marriage and a wonderful child, and I'm connecting with God. and uh, Yeah. And it was my addictions that gave me that. And for a moment, I was really grateful to be a sexologist. And for all of it, For just for a moment, to really be grateful for every moment of abuse and neglect I've experienced. All of that. I needed all of those things. All of that. The pain to get to where I am right now, which I am absolutely sure is where God wants me to be. And that's the great blessing.